Welcome to the Burden and Blessing Podcast, a study and discussion forum on the truth of God's Word. Our Bible study series examines a specific part of God's Word of Truth. We pray that through this study your faith will be built up and you will grow in your knowledge and understanding of God's Word through what you hear. Welcome back to Burden and Blessing. We're continuing our Bible study series in the book of Genesis. We have covered the first five chapters of this book so far, and we'll be digging into the familiar account of the flood of Noah's day this week. My name is Nathaniel Mayhew, and joining me to go through our study of Genesis again this week is Pastor Mark Tiefel. Mark, we're coming to an interesting period in the history of the Old Testament in the last chapter. We covered a genealogy that took us away from Adam and Eve in the garden and covered a lot of ground. And now we're moving ahead to another event that is spoken of all through the scriptures. This isn't just, you know, one chapter in the Old Testament. It's mentioned by Jesus. It's mentioned by the apostles of the New Testament. So this event is a pretty important event. And you introduced this a little bit last time, but who is it that we're going to be really focused on in these couple of chapters here? We'll be talking about Noah and the flood and as you mentioned, that's probably one of the most well-known Bible stories in the whole Bible. But for many people today, they keep it in the realm of story in the sense of it being sort of a fanciful fairy tale. And I think what we'll be able to do as we study it in our podcast here is show how important this is like you said how it's used in the new testament the impact that it has on our faith today and as we've start as we've used the whole premise of this genesis study from the beginning is these chapters are foundational to our faith and it's important for us to recognize that although the flood is very very well known it still is very important for us to understand in detail as well you mentioned Noah. He's a pretty familiar individual, again, in Bible lore, you know, as far as knowing the name and what the events were that surround him. We have some interesting things that describe Noah in this chapter in the opening verses. First of all, we have the connection to the previous generation. So this is the family of Seth. So he was the descendant that carried the line to the Savior. But we're told something really interesting in the opening verse of chapter six. It says, now it came about when the men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And then God says, my spirit is not going to strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days will be 120 years. So we get this little bit of an introduction where the, we have this contrast between the, the sons of, of God and the daughters of men. What's happening here in these opening couple of verses? Well, there's a lot of debate on what these titles mean, what the sons of God are, what the daughters of men are. But I think the clearest understanding is that the followers of God started intermarrying with unbelievers. And, and what happened as a result of that is that the faithfulness to God started to diminish on the earth. And the reason I come away with that interpretation of these verses and how I would understand the titles in that way is because the effect that the Lord's getting at here is that it's causing wickedness and unbelief on the earth to prevail. 
to, to prevail to such an extent where obviously God's about to tell us he's going to destroy the world. And, and the verses go forward about how in verse five, it says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that the every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, how many adjectives does God have to put on there to, to the evil that was going on in the world at that time? It was only evil. It was evil continually. It was every intent of man's heart and thought. And so I think that when we see this, these titles of the sons of God marrying the daughters of men, I think it, what God is indicating for us there is that believers were not preserving God's word in that sense. Not that they had the written Bible at this time, but the the essence of their faith, the foundation of their faith, the, the intermarrying was causing that to be mixed in with the wickedness, the unbelief, the evil of the world. And to such an extent where um, it seems God is painting a very dire picture here leading up to the proclamation of the flood. It seems like it's uh, a very, very bad situation on the earth. It was so bad that we're told that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. And so in verse 7, the Lord says, I'm going to blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals and creeping things to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. I mean, you described in that one verse just how bad it had gotten every thought and intent of the heart was only evil continually. But now God is going to step in and he's sorry that he has created man. He's going to destroy man. Why don't we dig into that just a little bit? What's going through the mind of God with all of this? And why even create man if that's going to be the result? Well, this is probably one of those passages that the skeptics will point to and say that God is the vengeful tyrant that just throws a fit and wipes man off the face of the earth in his anger and his disgust. Now, I'm not going to deny that certainly God is indicating he's angry with sin here. But as we saw in the garden with Adam and Eve, when God banished them from the garden after their sin, it was ultimately an act of God's mercy. And I think we can understand the same connection here with, with what's going on in the flood to some extent, that this is ultimately an act of God's mercy as well as God's judgment. Certainly God is angry over sin. He's indicating he's going to judge the world because of its wickedness. But underneath all of that is the, the theme and the current of God's mercy. And, the, and it, what it gets to is this. If, if mankind intermixed with, the, with heathen faiths or, or unbelief or wickedness to such an extent, it could deteriorate completely the line of the Messiah and the message and the promise of the Savior for all people that God had given to Adam and Eve. And so sometimes we forget that idea when we think about Genesis here, because we're only in chapter six. God gave the promise in chapter three. Now, chronologically, several years have taken place between chapter three and chapter six, um, hundreds of years. But at the same time, it's still pretty early on in the Bible. And we, we often think, well, what, what, what could a story this early have any bearing or connection with the promise of Jesus at all? But that's, that's ultimately what's on the heart of God here is that, if, if faith is lost entirely, then the Messiah, his line is extinguished, is lost. And so God is thinking here about preservation of, of the, the messianic promise too, so that all people may have the assurance of Jesus coming and being the Savior. And that's, that's really at the heart of it too. And, and so you see an element of God's mercy in preserving 
that messianic promise as well, which was much more important than any earthly matter for, for people. Well, I appreciate the fact that you brought out, you know, not only the justice of God and the judgment of God, which is certainly clear in this chapter. I mean, even Jesus, when he refers to this section, he speaks about in connection with the judgment of God, but there's also that aspect of mercy. And I'd like you to comment on him, if you would. In verse eight, we see the emphasis of God's mercy. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. How does that bring out the mercy of God as well as what we hear about Noah? Um, I think what we see there is not, not that Noah was perfect, not that Noah was sinless, but that he still trusted in God, that he still hung on and, and was attached to that grace of God. And so God chose him then as the, the individual to bring about um, the deliverance of his creation through the flood. He, Noah was chosen in that way. Um, and so you see God's grace and mercy was still present as well to those who trusted him, to those who would follow him. It's not that God had, God did not abandon mankind. Mankind had abandoned God. And, and Noah was an individual who still trusted in the Lord. So in verse 9, then, when the Bible says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and he walked with God, it doesn't mean that he was perfect. He earned God's favor with all of this. How, how do we properly understand those terms blameless and righteous there in connection with what you just said? Well, clearly we can't. We can't take away from that that Noah was perfect in the sense of never never committing sin. That would that would betray what the Bible says that all people are sinful. All people from the line of Adam and Eve have that original sin. So Noah was a sinner. But I, I, I would understand this in the same way that we can, can call ourselves blameless before God, that faith covers that. Faith washes away those those sins. Faith puts the righteousness of Christ on the individual. And so that's how we should understand Noah's perfection or righteousness as it's characterized in this chapter is it's by faith, just like it is for us. So God sees the wickedness of the world. Noah finds grace or favor in his eyes. And here's again where we see that contrast between God's judgment and his mercy. And so in verses 13 and following, then the Lord gives Noah a command. What's the command that God gives to Noah and what's the purpose of it? Well, the command is to build an ark. And the the ark was simply a title for a, a vessel that would survive the flood that would preserve the creation. Uh, and so God gives this task to Noah. It says in verse 13, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence. And God says he's going to destroy uh, the, the earth with a flood. And so God then goes and gives Noah the instructions on how to build the ark. And he actually gives him the dimensions as well and uh, tells him he wants it to be three levels. He wants it to be 300 cubits long, um, a width of 50 cubits, a height of 30 cubits, um, and put a door on the side. Um, and he talks about how he will, God will bring every two of every living thing to Noah at the right time to bring onto the ark. And so God's task to Noah is to get this prepared, to get this started, because God's judgment timeline is now in effect, and God has declared that this is going to take place. You mentioned the measurement there, a cubit. I've done a lot of building, and I have never 
constructed using a cubit. I've used inches, I've used feet, I've used meters, I've used yards. Help me to understand what a cubit is and give me a little bit of a perspective on just exactly how large this would have been then. My understanding is that a cubit is approximately about a foot and a half. It's about the length of, of your finger down to your elbow, maybe about 18 inches, some have said. And so it's a little bit longer than our standard unit of measurement, which would be a foot. So when you think about this in terms of the arc, the arc was approximately, according to the dimensions given in chapter six here, approximately 500 some feet long. So that's about one and a half football fields to give us some some understanding um, in our in our modern idea. Um, the arc would have been about 50 feet high. Um, so that's pretty considerable height there. And then you think about God giving three decks to the arc. So it's got quite a bit of space on the inside. And then I think the width of the arc would be approximately 80, maybe 80 to 90 feet wide, uh, if I'm if I remember correctly. So we're talking about a huge vessel here. The Sunday school books or the preschool books that depict the ark as this tiny little wooden boat are not accurate. This is a huge vessel. In fact, it would have been the largest wooden structure in the world um, as, as God depicts it in the scriptures. Certainly room there to contain what God intended. So you've kind of given us a picture of the monumental size of the task itself, as well as the structure. We're talking about a monumental undertaking, building this thing, getting all of these animals. Let's go into a couple of other arguments that have been made regarding this particular account. So there are some that would simply say that what happened in Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9 didn't happen at all. There are others, though, that I think they want to be faithful to the scriptures and say, yes, this is God's word, but they understand it in a different way. So they would say, well, this wasn't a worldwide flood. This would have been a local flood, just like we have today when we have you know, rivers overflow and, or, or like a tsunami or a hurricane. That's the kind of thing that would have been taking place. But there's absolutely no way that this could have been a universal flood. What does the text actually tell us about that particular argument? So the, as you mentioned, the big one that is debated, at least in Christian circles, is whether or not this was a global or local flood. And what we mean by that is global would be covering the whole earth and local would be just in one area of the earth. And so I'm not going to address so much the argument that the flood never happened. I mean, obviously, as Christians, we're going to trust the Bible. There's going to be many people that believe the flood is just a myth. Uh, where I think getting into the New Testament helps answer some of those criticisms of how we are to understand the flood today. But as far as the, the Christian circles that are going to debate on global or local flood, the text really does not give any room for the idea of a local flood. So I think, so I think the prevailing opinion by many skeptical or liberal, liberal Christians today is that it just covered the region of Mesopotamia or that, that general area where God's people would have been living at this time, but it was not global. Um, several problems with that in the text. We've already talked about how God's whole rationale for the flood was to destroy every living thing because of the, the rampant wickedness that had been on the earth. We talked about all of the words that God used to qualify the wickedness all people, every intention of man's heart, 
the wickedness was was prevailing throughout the whole earth. Um, so God is very clear. This is we are to understand the devastation and the judgment as comprehensive, and that would only be completed by a global flood. Here's another problem that we get into in chapter six, verse seventeen. God says, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. That is not the language and terminology that God would use to talk about a flood in one region. Obviously, that alone would be devastating enough, but God, God says all flesh, everything on earth. So if we're Christians using the Bible, it, do, it does us no benefit or value to to take what the Bible actually says and completely contradict it. The most compelling piece of evidence though comes from chapter seven um, in verses 19 and 20. It's recorded there. The waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward and the mountains were covered. Um, I think any any adult listening to this podcast is going to understand that when you when water rises, it has to it has to rise as a unit in order to cover the highest point. You know, it's not like the earth was tipped on its side and only part of the water covered up the mountains and, and left some things exposed. The water rose in a universal way, just as it naturally does. And it says here it covered the mountains by 15 cubits. The highest points on the earth were covered. That can only indicate a global flood. No local flood could do such a thing. And so, it, like we've seen throughout the book of Genesis, the Christian groups that want to detract from the real message that God gives really have to basically destroy and dismantle the text. And that is not something that, not, not a position that any Christian wants to find him or herself in. So you've covered the chapters and the context and the text itself of Genesis chapter six and seven, which are, like you said, very, very clear. You know, every living thing, every mountain, the whole earth, everything. I mean, that, that is all inclusive language there. Let's, let's jump ahead to the New Testament for a minute, Mark. We, we've talked a little bit about how the New Testament writers use and understand this particular event. We've got Hebrews chapter 11, which we've talked about before. Hebrews chapter 11 speaks about Noah, and by faith, Noah built the ark. Jesus also brings up the, the context of the ark in, in his ministry. You want to touch on some of those New Testament examples and what we can learn from the New Testament writers about this account? Well, one of the most interesting ones from Jesus uh, came near the end of his ministry and he was talking about the day the final day of judgment that would come about um, Matthew 24 verses 38 to 39 say for as in the days that were before the flood they were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away so shall also the coming of the son of man be and so that's one of the, the most explicit references there in the New Testament to Noah's flood, that Jesus likens it, as he's talking about the final day of judgment, as well as the destruction of Jerusalem that would come about, he's talking about the surprise element that's going to happen here 
with God's judgment, that people are going to be living their lives as they always have, acting as if no, nothing different is going to occur. And Jesus says it's going to catch them unaware, just as it did in the days of the flood, and it's going to be a destruction and judgment from the hand of God. And so what we gather from this is that there is a message for us to understand about Noah's flood in the New Testament. Jesus uses a teaching point here, but it also helps us understand how Jesus viewed this account from Genesis, that Jesus recognized this as a historical account. It was not just a, a fable or a myth for him, but he mentions this as if Noah was a, an actual living person and this actually happened. And, and because it's historical, you can base what's going to happen in the future with God's judgment for your life on, on this lesson learned from Noah. So that's a very valuable piece of information for us from the ministry of Jesus. I read from Matthew 24 near the end of his ministry. It also occurs the same account in Mark 13 and Luke 17. And, you know, another indication that Jesus uses fact to establish his teaching. He's talked about if you abide in, in the truth, you are his disciple. And so Jesus would not use a made up story that wasn't true as a basis for his teaching. So the fact that he appeals to this in Genesis shows us that Jesus saw Genesis as historical truth. The Gospels bring it up a number of times. Peter references the flood in his epistle also later on. I think one of my favorites though is Hebrews chapter 11, because like you were talking about in Hebrews chapter 11, we have this list of historical figures and Noah is one of those historical figures. I mean, if, if I listed, listed a bunch of historical figures, Mark, and you know, here, so you, you pick the one that doesn't belong, okay? So I have uh, Abraham Lincoln, I have Napoleon Bonaparte, I have Superman, and I have Adolf Hitler. You know, which of those four individuals doesn't belong on the list? Superman, I would be willing to guess. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, we, we, have, we have historical characters. And in, in Hebrews chapter 11, we've got this long list of individuals that are spoken of in the Old Testament. And the writer of the Hebrews says, by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. This is a historical event. And, and the writers of the New Testament understood that it was a historical event. They didn't, they didn't see it as historical fiction or plain fiction. This was something that was real and it had a real implication for our lives as Jesus points to judgment and mercy and when that judgment day comes, like the, the day of the flood, you're on one side or the other. There, there's no third option with that. I mean, the people of the days of the flood, they were either on the ark or they were not. And they either lived or they died. You know, those were the two options and that was it. Yeah, and the implication, like you mentioned, was this is true because it happened, because it is historical. And so, you know, even, you know, there's even in myths and fables, there's lessons that we can learn. But if it's based on something that actually did happen and a person who really did live, there's a lot more value for our life. And that is the appeal that God is making in the New Testament. And Hebrews 11 is a great example, as you mentioned, because he, Noah is lined up with all of these other individuals that people don't doubt about their historical validity. But, when, but like we said, when you, for some reason, when you go into the book of Genesis in these early chapters, people want to doubt that. And God puts it squarely here and puts Noah in that category, not only as a believer of God living by faith, but as somebody because he went through what he did 
and it's true, then you can take a, a lesson for your life and you can, you can take a, an added benefit and learn for your own faith from what he endured and what he went through. Let's back up one more time to Genesis 6 and 7. There's one other thing before we bring this particular episode to a close that I'd like to cover. Another assertion that is made regarding the account of Genesis is that it simply wasn't possible for all of the animals that are described in Genesis to be on the ark for as long as they were on the ark. And there's a number of different places in Genesis chapter 6 and in 7 where Moses records the number of the animals. So we have two of every kind of animal, and then we have seven of the clean animals, which we'll talk a little bit more in the next episode. Do you want to just kind of address that particular assertion that it simply wouldn't have been possible for us to put all of these uh, animal species on the ark? That's a very important question. And the key there is understanding what we talked about in Genesis 1 with the creation of the animals, that God created them according to their kinds. And here in chapter 6, God says um, in verse 20, of the birds after their kind, of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you and you shall keep them alive. So God is classifying the animals according to kind. And when we talked about that in Genesis chapter one, the, mo the most direct parallel to that in our modern classification would be the family of animals. So we're not talking about species here. That's, we're not getting that specific. God uses the word kind, which relates to the word family in our classification, which would mean this is a much broader element of animals than two of every living thing. Um, for example, take the, the family of cats. We're, God's not saying he's going to take two tigers and two lions and two leopards and two, two cheetahs and, and two of every species. He's saying, I'm taking two of the cat kind. And from that kind is going to come the rest of the animals after the flood. And so what we have when we get that is a much smaller number of animals that would have to be contained on the ark. You know, some people have estimated that there were only about 1400 kinds that needed to be on the ark, which would relate to less than 7,000 animals approximately. And now if you think about taking younger animals, most animals are, are smaller to begin with. You think about taking the younger ones. I mean, obviously if you want them to reproduce later on, you're not going to take a pair of animals that's about to die. If you take a younger younger set of animals that is smaller, there's plenty of room on the ark for animals, people, food, supplies, given the dimensions that we have. So I think I think that's an important question because most people have in their mind two of every single type of animal, every species of animal on the earth, which would be just a ridiculous amount. But the Bible is very specific, just as it is in Genesis 1 two of every kind would be brought to Noah. And, and, and when you see that happen, you see it, it makes complete sense that, that God could contain all these animals on the ark. We're going to stop here. This is sort of in the middle of our discussion of the flood, but this was a, a lot of material for us to cover. So we're going to break this up into two episodes. Next time we're going to come back and we're going to discuss the rest of chapter seven, chapter eight, and then get into chapter nine as well. 
and and get into a few more details related to the flood that we have not yet covered. So if you got a question that maybe you have been thinking about in this particular episode, that might come up in our next episode as well, or feel free to send us an email too if there's something that you'd like to see us cover. But we're going to take a take a break here at uh, Genesis chapter 7 and resume this then next time in our podcast. Again, what a blessing it is for us as we reflect on this history that God has given to us in the Old Testament to be able to see, again, that simple message of sin and grace, that God points to the problem of our sin, and while he is just, he also is merciful, and he desires our salvation, and he has accomplished that just as he did with Noah's salvation in the ark. He has accomplished our salvation through that long time descendant of Noah, the Savior Jesus, by delivering us and protecting us from sin and what we deserve in his work for us. We hope that this has been a benefit to you, and we hope that you'll join us again next time as we resume our study of this wonderful book of the Old Testament, Genesis. Thanks for being with us. We hope that you will join us again next week for another episode of Burden and Blessing Podcast as we continue to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Until next time, take confidence in your Savior's promise that he will always be with you, even to the end of the world.